here. We are uh, not often out on this side of the state, but it's uh, it's great to be here. We try to we, our family vacations. Uh, my wife Amy, her family comes. Uh, we go to Sandbridge every year, and so we're at Sandbridge. Got here yesterday. I was planning to bring the whole family with us, but you can be praying. My uh, wife's grandfather has not been all that healthy and is in hospice. And so got a call yesterday as we were on our way down that he's not doing great. And so the family's trying to figure out they have to get to Arlington and how to do all that stuff. So just be praying for, um, for Amy's uh, mom particularly and, and the rest of the family uh, as well. So um, Amy and I, i just tell you a little bit about us. We both grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I went to Virginia Tech, graduated from there um, in 1999, uh, went back to Richmond and worked as a youth pastor for a number of years, and then uh, when Amy graduated from college, she went to TCU out in Fort Worth. Uh, she came back to Richmond, we got married, she finished a master's in social work at VCU, uh, and we left for Covenant Seminary out in St. Louis, so I could get uh, my, my MDiv, and uh, finished there in December of 2007, uh, we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, and worked as an associate pastor uh, at a church there in North Raleigh. Uh, I loved that, had a heart for RUF, and was involved with RUF through seminary, and then um, after seminary in Raleigh, on the Presbytery side, supporting the RUF ministries at Duke, UNC, and NC State. Um, the, the guy who started RUF at Virginia Tech, J.R. Foster, left in uh, 2010 to take another job within RUF, and uh, they called us to see if we could come uh, to Virginia Tech and work there with Reformed University Fellowship. So we moved in June of 2011, and have been there, just finished our third year uh, at, uh, at Virginia Tech. We love it. Uh, it's beautiful. We love getting to the beach, um, of course, but uh, we love living up in Blacksburg and Mountains. So uh, it's a great time. We have four kids. Uh, Josiah, he's seven. Cooper, he's five. Uh, Josiah will be going into second grade. Cooper will be going into kindergarten. Sadie Jane, our daughter, uh, will be three in a couple weeks. And then Benji uh, turned one uh, last, at the end of May. So um, things are crazy for us. The first prayer request whenever I go and preach somewhere uh, is to pray for our family, our sanity. Uh, the summer's nice. Things are a little slower for RUF. Uh, pastors in the summer. We do a lot of fundraising and some travel and um, kind of decompress a little bit before things get started, but um, we don't really have much time. It's a short summer. Our, our boys will go start their school August 12th, uh, so we'll get back from vacation here and just have a few weeks before their school starts, and then all of our students come and start school on the 26th of August, and so uh, things really uh, ramp up for us here pretty quick. So just pray for our family. Uh, that we have a good time this week and um, really enjoy being together before uh, the craziness of the fall hits. As far as our ministry goes, we're um, starting the 10th year of ministry of RUF at Virginia Tech. And so uh, that's, a, that's a real privilege to continue that, that legacy there. Um, hopefully faithful gospel preaching, weekly uh, preaching of the gospel on campus, and building relationships, building a community. We've got about 100 or so students in our ministry that would, are pretty committed to us, and uh, we, love, we love them. Uh, it's a great opportunity to build a family. We, we are an extension of the church on campus. I try to tell our students we're like a really big, small group of the church. 
on campus, if that makes sense. We, we want to represent the church on campus. Um, we want to be an opportunity for students to grow in their relationship with Jesus, to be a place to wrestle with their doubts about Christianity, about who Jesus is. We want to be a place where um, students who don't know Jesus can be loved into the kingdom. And we can um, get to know and build relationships with students and enjoy that time. And so we have a weekly uh, Bible, a weekly large group. We have small group Bible studies that meet every week. I do a lot of one-on-one meeting with students. Um, and it's a real privilege to represent you there. Because of the way RUF is structured, I am your pastor to students at Virginia Tech. And so um, it's your church and about 65 other churches across the state of Virginia uh, that have come together to pool their resources to send pastors uh, onto college campuses. They're not just in Virginia Tech and not just Christopher Newport, but there are eight of us in Virginia. And we just started James Madison uh, last month. Uh, they'll kick off this fall. Uh, also UVA, Washington Lee, Lynchburg, VCU, William and Mary. Um, and so uh, a lot of schools uh, in Virginia. About, there are about 150 of us across the country, 150 RUF uh, campus ministries. And so I just encourage you to pray for us as we gear up for the fall, as uh, we try to meet as many freshmen as possible. There'll be about almost 6,000 new freshmen moving to Blacksburg uh, to start school at Virginia Tech. And so that, I feel that weight as the pastor there. I feel the weight of 6,000 new students coming and making um, sometimes really poor decisions. And um, sometimes good ones, sometimes bad ones. But uh, coming and um, uh, that just that weighs on me. And I just encourage you, uh, as you think of it, to pray for us, to share that burden, uh, to see that the gospel will be preached to those to those students. If you would, turn in your Bibles or um, into the bulletin uh, to this chapter in Mark, Mark 1. We're going to read just a few verses there. We're going to talk about... Um, desperation. What does it look like to be desperate and not to know where to go? Um, where, where do we turn? How, how, do we, how do we function in the midst of desperation? There's an old um, American proverb. It came out of the Wild West. It goes something like this. When you reach the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. <laughs> you heard that before? Uh, it's very gritty, American, right? It sounds tough. It's pretty unbiblical. Um, and so I want to look at another, another way uh, to handle our desperation. I think that that's um, pretty poor. I think Evo said even before that our faith, it's not so much about our faith, it's about the object of our faith. It's not about the grip that we have, but it's about what we're holding on to. And, um, and I think that the Bible gives us a better picture of that. And as we look at this, at this leper uh, very briefly this morning, I think we're going to see a, a better way into that, a better way into knowing how to handle our desperation and, and what to do with that. And I, I do just want to recognize from the outset that I'm a guest preacher and walking into a community that's, that's hurting uh, with known hurts and pain and suffering and mourning and a lot of unspoken hurts and a lot of unspoken desperation. And I know that I can't speak specifically into every situation. 
though we are on a large spectrum, our students come to us from all over the place. Some have known great depths of desperation, and some have really never experienced, it seems, a hardship in their life. And they get to college, and they have no idea what to do, and they sort of crumble. Or they panic, or they freak out. And so I know that we're sort of all over the map this morning, and I pray that this passage, wherever you may be this morning, known desperation, unspoken desperation, hidden under the surface, uh, wherever you are, uh, that this passage would be an encouragement to you. So let me read uh, from the Gospel of Mark and then pray for us. This is God's word for us this morning. And the leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it is truth and life to us. We pray that through the story of this leper, that you would help us, that you would meet us in our despair, that you would meet us in our sadness and our brokenness, that you would meet us in our uh, distance from you. Would you draw us to yourself? Would you make Jesus more beautiful and believable to us? that we would have great hope in Him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you felt and known this desperation that I've talked about? Have you felt it? Maybe it's been an illness. Maybe it's a broken relationship in a family. Maybe it's, it's a death that you're mourning. Maybe it's um, a difficult work situation. You're put into a um, a situation where you're making difficult ethical decisions or you're, you're working crazy hours or you, you just feel the weight. Sort of burden. You, you, you can't breathe. You can't function. We, we have um, a couple places on campus that I like to meet students. And um, it's great. It works really well. Um, it's a high traffic area, so it's really nice for um, being seen and being noticed, being able to meet our students' friends and kind of build relationships with non-Christians and see folks. And it's really hard for having conversations uh, two or three weeks into the semester. Usually with freshmen, um, they have to live with a roommate, and um, that's never usually fun. Um, nine times out of ten, that goes really poorly. And um, midterms hit, or um, they were dating somebody in high school and they get to college and they think they're going to make this great run at it and uh, that goes real south, that goes south real fast. Um, something happens they, and they, they get to this place where they, they, they can't breathe and it's popular, there's noise in the dining hall and all these folks are talking and they, they feel this desperation and it, it's pretty common to get up and just, we'll, we'll go for a walk and we'll go talk and folks can breathe and we can talk through 
that kind of desperation. Maybe you know what that feels like. And then I have some students that come to us, and maybe you know this too, things are pretty good. Life is great. Uh, things are good with their family. Um, they get along with their brothers and sisters, maybe their roommate. Things are working out for them. Uh, the situation is pretty good. They're healthy. They're enjoying their major. They know what they want to do with their life. They, they saved up money, right, from their summer job, and so they, they actually have some, some money to spend. They, you know, they, things are going really well for them. And it seems like it's those students that have the most, the most struggle with dealing with desperation. Um, I know this from my own life. Things are um, good for us. We're in a job we love. Our kids are, are healthy. They don't listen uh, often, but they are healthy, and we're thankful for them. They, um, you know, our cars mostly work. Um, our house is slowly falling apart, right? It's, it's not rapidly falling. Things are, things are pretty good. We can kind of hold things together. And um, I, I talk to our students about sort of that, that sense of what happens when that feeling of desperation comes, comes on them. And, um, I used, used this illustration uh, before with them. There's a movie, maybe some of you have seen it. Uh, it's a Liam Neeson movie. Um, it's called Taken. Um, I can recommend the trailer to the movie. Um, maybe not the whole movie, but I can recommend the trailer. If you can YouTube the trailer, um, that little 30 seconds or two minutes, you know, if you find the extended one, is really uh, awesome. Liam Neeson is a dad. He's got this real gravelly voice. He's um, talented. He's got a daughter who goes on a trip to Europe, right, with a friend of hers, and they get off the plane and are immediately kidnapped. So Liam Neeson is able, through his sort of skillful ways, to, um, to get the phone number of the kidnapper, right? Have you seen this in the trailer? He's on the phone, and th this is what he says. I can't do Liam Neeson, but this is the quote. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. And I will find you. And I will kill you. It's awesome. It's great. The trailer, it's amazing, right? It's so good. I have that kind of a reaction when desperation hits me. My students have that kind of a reaction when desperation hits them. Maybe you have that similar kind of reaction. Some situation falls upon you, something happens in your life and you're not sure what to do, and what you do is you default to your very particular set of skills. Skills that you've acquired over a very long career. And you're able to manage your desperation. You can throw money at it. You can compartmentalize it. You can run from it. You can pretend it doesn't exist. You can avoid those people in the halls of your school. You can go a different route, right, to avoid the temptation. Whatever, whatever it may be, you, you can manage your desperation with your very particular set of skills. 
there comes a point when that desperation becomes unmanageable. When you can't put it in a box. It can't be contained. It's that whack-a-mole thing, right, where you, you, you beat it down once and it pops up in three other places. It, it can't be controlled. And what, what do you do then? This leper knew unmanageable desperation. Leprosy uh, was a disease um, that affects your nerves of your extremities, your fingers, toes, arms, legs. You couldn't feel it, so you could be walking and stub your toe in a rock and break your, uh, break your toe open, um, and it would be bleeding and dirty, and you, you just wouldn't know it, and it would get infected, and it would just get worse. And from the outside in, your body is deteriorating. Your skin is falling off. Your, um, and you have no knowledge of it as it's, it's just happening. You can't feel it. Um, you don't catch it. You don't... There's nothing you can do about it. There's a doctor, uh, kind of the leading expert on leprosy at the uh, end of the, or the beginning of the 20th century. He, he called it uh, a painless hell, a living death. And it was just deteriorating your body. It was falling apart in front of you. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, this is uh, maybe not sermon material, but that same doctor would um, send folks home with a cat, because the cat would um, eat or chase away the rats and the mice that would get at your fingers and toes. Not awful. It is. It is a horrible, horrible disease. Not just physically. Add to that physical trauma, the social isolation that comes with being a leper. Le Levitical law um, talks a lot about what you have to do as a leper. You would lust your hair, you'd wear ratty clothes, you had to be separated, isolated from community. You couldn't be with your family. You couldn't go to worship. You couldn't live in town. Uh, if anyone saw you coming on the road, you had to yell, unclean, unclean, and watch as they just ran away. It was unmanageable. It was isolated. Separated you from everyone. We need to see not that we have physical leprosy, but that there is a condition that strikes each of us. A spiritual leprosy. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. That our sin, as descendants of Adam, as human beings, we are born into sin with a spiritual leprosy, a deterioration of our souls, unmanageable. You can't contain it. You can't hide it. And the longer you live, the more you see your brokenness, the depths of your brokenness. And it's not just physical, not just spiritual, it's social, right? There are social ramifications for our sin. Our sin affects other people. It's broken the whole world. Our relationships are, are broken and we've been isolated. We've been pushed to the margins, some of us. Even in our families, we may feel alone. We may feel that isolation. 
Some of us know that more intimately than others. And we know what to do to deal with it. Some of us maybe are hearing about this for the first time or starting maybe this year to deal with our brokenness. This leper came to an all-or-nothing decision. I've read this passage a lot of times, but uh, it wasn't until this summer that I really noticed for the first time what an all-or-nothing decision this was. This leper, in coming to Jesus and kneeling at his feet, was saying, Jesus, if you, if you can't do something here, I'm dead. I'll be stoned for breaking all the rules, all the codes, all the regulations. If, if, if you can't do something, I'm done. See that? Came to an all or nothing, life or death situation. Things are bad enough here that all I can do is run to Jesus. I'm going to throw myself at Him at His mercy, and if He can't do anything, I'll surely be killed. you know that kind of desperation? Have you gotten that fed up with your sin and brokenness? Maybe it's that sin you can't quit. Maybe it's the sin that keeps disrupting your marriage. The one that keeps separating you from your parents. The one that isolates you. Maybe it's the brokenness of the world around you. Things just aren't the way they're supposed to be. God designed things to be beautiful, and yet they're broken. Things are deteriorating all around us. Work is hard and difficult. Relationships are trying and challenging. We've got to see that to deal with this, the first step is to come to Jesus. Notice that this leper comes, all or nothing, life or death, with no conditions. What does he say? If you will, you can make me clean. There's no, hey, I'm really valuable. I have this, all of these things going for me. I have a really bright future, and so if you, if you were to heal me, if you could make me clean, here's what I'll do for you. I'll never go back to that place again. I'll never commit that sin again. If, if Jesus, you could. There's none of that bargaining. It is simply just coming to Jesus, life or death, throwing ourselves at his feet and say, if you will, make me clean. And what happens? What does Jesus do? Does the leper find that he's scolded for breaking Levitical law? Does he find that he's punished? That he's outcast? That he's driven back out of the city? No, he finds compassion. He finds pity. Jesus has pity on him. He, he has compassion on him. That, that word compassion, the, the sense is that it's from the gut, that Jesus is moved, uncontrollably almost, moved from the gut towards this man. It's used a couple other places in Scripture, and it actually has this connotation of being angry, that Jesus is frustrated and upset and angry at, at the brokenness of the world uh, when Lazarus dies. And Jesus weeps. There's a sense in which he's, he's moved 
with compassion, with, with pity, with, with anger, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. This leper finds that Jesus identifies with him. Finds that Jesus unites himself to him. Look, Jesus even touches him. What would it look like for this leper to be clean? You know that Jesus has raised the dead before with just a word. Right? Jesus has said, Lazarus, get up. He's gone to a blind man and said, be, be healed, receive your sight. He's, he's done all of these miraculous healings just by speaking. He's even done it from a town away. Right? There's no need for Jesus to get his hands dirty here. But what, is, what does he do? He touches the untouchable. This man's biggest vulnerability, his biggest weakness, his, his most desperate, right? He can't be touched. He can't touch anyone. He is isolated, and Jesus comes and touches him. You know, we know in our house a, a lot about uh, dirty. We don't know a whole lot about clean. We know a lot. My kids drink this um, V8 juice, this red V8 juice, um, and I clean it up every morning. Um, we know yogurt, not just spilled on the table, but like mushed into the table, right? We know um, uh, cheddar bunnies, right? Granulated cheddar bunnies in the carpet or on the, on the hardwoods, right? We know a lot about dirty. And here's Here's the rule in our house, right? If something is clean, it will immediately be made dirty by one of my children, right? You get a room clean, they're going to spill something, right? And what happens, whatever they spill always makes what we've just cleaned dirty, always, a hundred out of a hundred times. Jesus is clean, right? If anyone could say they were clean, it would be when he touches something that's unclean, when he comes into contact with something unclean, he makes the unclean clean. If one of us came into contact with a leper, we would have to go to the priests to find out the ritual that we would have to do to be cleansed. But Jesus, he doesn't go anywhere. He is clean, and he makes the unclean clean with his touch. I heard a sermon uh, illustration uh, not too long ago, and I think it really fits here. A guy was telling a story about this couple uh, in college. Uh, this guy was interested in this girl, and so he asked her out on a date, and they were they were hanging out. And they no he noticed that she went out on the, when they were on the date that she wore these gloves thin gloves all the time. He didn't ask anything, didn't want to like weird her out or anything, but just she just wore gloves. And so they went on this date, had a nice time, uh, and he wanted to continue to see her, and he noticed that she always wore these gloves. And so, trying to figure out what was going on, he knew it was sensitive for her, didn't want to bother her with it necessarily, went to a friend of hers and just said, hey, what's going on? Tell me, what's up with the gloves? And so the friend said, well, she had this cancerous 
position and has left her hands gnarly and she's embarrassed and doesn't want to draw attention to them and so the gloves just protect her from the attention of people. And so um, he's continuing to date her and never brings it up, right? And so he decides, uh, he wants to profess his love to her. And so they go on a walk and they find a bench and they sit down on this bench and he's about to, to tell her that he loves her he removes the gloves from her hands. And he kisses her hand. As if to say, I'm okay with your biggest weakness, your most, your, your biggest vulnerability, the thing that you would be most embarrassed of or most desperate about or most ashamed of. I'm okay with that. And you don't have to hide. And it's as if Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's coming to a leper to say, I'm going to touch you. I'm going to enter into your weakness and your vulnerability, and I'm going to touch you to show you that I love you and I care for you, and things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and I'm going to, I'm going to do something about it. Friends, as we run to Jesus, as we fall at his feet in the midst of our desperation and our brokenness, he meets us not with scorn, not with ridicule, not with difficulty or a set of regulations of go do this or that. He meets us with a touch. He's able to come and say, I'm entering into this with you. I, you are not alone in this. We are in this together. Touch makes us clean. It cleanses us completely. Look, this man was immediately made clean. And then this weird interaction happens, right? Jesus sternly uh, charges him, sends him away at once, and says, see, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. So he's got to go and uh, make his sacrifices to the priest, show that uh, he's been cleansed so that he can re-enter society, so that he can live with his family. He can hug his children, his wife, that he can um, go to worship, that he can participate in the life of the community. So he does, he goes. And instead of keeping quiet like Jesus asked him, what does he do? He begins to freely share about it. To the point that what? That Jesus is no longer able to openly enter a town. But Jesus has to go into the desolate places. Do you see what's happened here? In order for this man to be cleansed, in order for him to be restored, Jesus has to go to the desolate place. They have to change places. For the leper to be restored, to his life, for him to be cleansed, Jesus has to touch him and take on that uncleanness. He has to go into the desolate places. It's not too much further into the book of Mark that Jesus is going to go into the desolate places again. Right? Outside of the city to be crucified. To die the death that we should have. The one that guarantees our cleansing. Jesus is going to go out there again for us. He takes on 
our uncleanness. He takes on our sin. He takes on our brokenness. He takes on our desperation. Everything that would separate us, that would isolate us, He takes it on Himself. And as He lives the life that we couldn't and He dies in our place, Jesus purchases for us redemption. He purchases for us cleansing. He purchases for us restoration so that we know the fullness of life that He had. As He goes and experiences the depth of our brokenness and our sadness. And He willingly dies for us. So what does this, what does this mean for us? Some of you are desperate this morning. It may mean a miraculous healing like this. It may mean that your situation doesn't change, but that you are renewed in your spirit with the knowledge that Jesus has entered into your situation, that he has stepped into this world, that he has sacrificed himself so that we would know full redemption and restoration. Maybe not here in this life, but our, our eternity is sure. So if you're struggling this morning, if you don't know what to do with your desperation, run to Jesus. Find at His feet compassion, healing, redemption and restoration, the adoption of sons and daughters. Know that He is good. He has stepped into your brokenness. Those of you who've walked with Jesus for a long time, those of you who know what to do with your desperation, I would encourage you to be a model to those around you as you run to Jesus. We've heard uh, reports at Grace Covenant and through other friends uh, um, of your church, of your love for the Rodriguez's, for your care for them in the midst of Mark's passing and just the unimaginable grief and sorrow. We have heard reports of your care for them and um, it is a testimony of God's grace and His faithfulness. Uh, in the midst of other sadness and desperation happening maybe quietly in your own heart, know that Jesus is good, that He is King, He has come to make everything right. This world is not the way it should be, but Jesus is coming to restore and redeem the world. And that's our hope. The hope that we take to, uh, to Virginia Tech's campus, the hope that you take to Virginia Beach, is not that you've got to clean, clean up, that you've got to get your act together before you can come, that you've got to look a certain way, or that your family has to behave a certain way, that you have to conquered all of your demons before you can come to this church. So the message that we take to the world is that we are broken, that we are unclean, and that by Jesus' broken body and His blood shed for us, we have been made clean. That He took our place. And so our sadness, however deep, however huge it may seem, is met with the balm of the gospel. And that's the message that we take to the world. Let's pray.
Lord God, you are good to us. Father, to a congregation that is hurting, to a world that is broken. Father, you have sent your Son. Cleanliness incarnate, holiness incarnate, you have sent him into the world. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Father, we thank you for the grace of the gospel, that you meet all of us wherever we are. Father, as we run to you, you meet us with compassion, pity, and you heal us by stepping in, by taking our place. Father, we pray that you would help us to hope and rest in the gospel this morning. Father, I pray for Redeemer Church that they would continue to hope in the gospel. You would make it more real this morning. 